Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Quiet on the set. Today, we're talking about Pretty Little Liars' Original Sin, which recently concluded a 10-episode season on HBO Max. And my guest is the cinematographer, Anka Malatinska. Anka, welcome to Below the Line. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Excited to talk to you about this show. A warning for listeners, today's conversation may contain spoilers. Anka, take me back. How did you get involved with this series? I think my agent got a call and I got a call um, several months after I completed I Know What You Did Last Summer. The series had started, you know, as a pilot and first episode, and they had a cinematographer that was just doing the pilot and the first episode, and um, they had a hiatus, and then they were looking for a new DP. And I think they were specifically, you know, looking for people who've shot similar things and um, similar in in the young adult horror genre. It was similar to I Know What You Did Last Summer, but yet it was so completely, completely different. And I I interviewed with the core team and it just felt like a shoo-in. I loved their excitement and kind of their emphasis on a beautiful, you know, visual language that encapsules the show in its own world. Where and when was the filming? So we filmed upstate New York in the Catskills. You know, they started last summer. I didn't get involved till October. And that was the second block. I think they had a longer hiatus in the middle. And yeah, we were upstate New York about two and a half hours outside of New York City in this gorgeous world of upstate New York. And I don't know if you've ever been there or for those of you who haven't been there, you know, it's really like classic Americana with a complete absence of strip malls. There are these little New England towns that like you really feel their history. And you really, I lived in a cabin in the woods and I really felt like there could have been, you know, a crazy creeper living (laughs) just somewhere down the road from me. You never know. It's cold. It's dark. The trees are creaking. Where we filmed totally had that vibe of the show. Well, and so talk to me then about how that informed the visual language you were talking about. My sense was that upstate New York was really chosen as a filming location because it really did emulate the visual language of the story and the visual language of the series and of the story. You know, like we we always, we we kept saying that Millwood is a nondescript um, vintage time period where our characters live in a modern world where they have cell phones and laptops, but yet everything is kind of falling apart. The cars are old, the buses are old. We really paid a lot of attention, you know, whenever we had picture cars, they were older cars. Our bus was like a 1950s bus. We had one scene with a bus and our production design also really embraced, you know, both with the locations that we found and the sets that we created that like things are aging, they're falling apart, they're not brand new. And I think that really contributes to this like almost shining like, you know, 1970s vintage horror vibe. Yeah, it's certainly a dark and edgy show. And I'm interested particularly when you're talking about the teen horror genre, is there any difficulty in sort of maintaining that look? From my experience in television, maintaining a dark look is challenging for any show and for any show to start up and maintain a dark look unless you have a showrunner who is experienced and really on board with the look and able to protect that look 
from what often, you know, um, I feel like the executives at the network, you know, want things a little bit brighter. I mean, I hear that on every single show, on, on even on a bright show, we want it to be brighter. We're afraid <laughs> of darkness. You know, I know on, I know what you did last summer, like it crept up two weeks before production that, wait a minute, we don't want our characters to have old cars. They need new cars. It's sunny Hawaii. We want to see more Hawaii. We want it to be brighter, you know, which kind of led us to landing in this more like what I felt like I know what you did last summer was this poppy like Instagram, almost gossip girl type of aesthetic, you know, that I think is young and fresh and hip. But what we did on Pretty Little Liars, you know, and it really, it really is to the credit of Roberto and Lindsay, who are our showrunners, who really protected this dark look. And it's funny, when I started, I remember me and the director that I was working with, we had a little meeting with Roberto and Lindsay, and they were like, you know, you guys, we thought we were going to get a call about how amazing the show looks, because we think it looks so amazing. But we got a call that they want it to be a little bit brighter, you know, and then through the rest of the series. So I would adjust some things and I would, you know, and mainly like what I adjust is that I uh, shoot it in such a way that the network has a little bit more flexibility in the negative. But I still put my opinion and like what we want as a collective creative team in the CDL, which is the color decision list, which is kind of like the print of the film, the print that we sent to dailies, you know, and honestly, it's to protect the shadows. It's to protect, you know, the directors and myself and all of the creators that, you know, we give those network executives an opportunity to have an opinion on what it is that they want, but we still give them the art that we believe the show should live in and you know and again to Roberto and Lindsay's credit I think they really protected a dark look they really loved that dark look and quite honestly it's the first time I've seen a show screen on a streamer where I didn't feel like after the final color correction like it was lifted I feel like I am watching the show that we shot and that we color corrected you know and nobody in the end went in there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right make those adjustments that, you know, and uh, it's funny because i and i don't know what this like that fear is because dark things can be spectacularly beautiful you know and the visual language should have contrast between bright moments and dark moments or you're living in a flat world <laughs> you know that has no visual arc the dramatic arc also has to have a visual arc I also want to hear more from you about how you, as the cinematographer, contribute to what I feel is one of the strong themes of this show, and that's the fact that all of our protagonists are women. One of the episodes, episode four, is called The Female Gaze, talking about putting women at the center of this horror story and maybe how that's different than how horror is traditionally filmed. It's been an interesting half a decade, even even less than a decade, where half a decade ago I was walking into shows and I had male directors waiting with bated breath to see if I could operate a camera as an A camera operator. You know, maybe that's a span of the past eight years, you know, and very quickly, you know, within a couple of years, I was on Insecure in a pretty much all-female camera team, you know, and by the time, honestly, I got to Pretty Little Liars, like... 
it actually wasn't like, oh, look, we have all these women working on these sh the show. We were just, we're people working on the show. Like we're not, and we're not really noticing who's a man, who's a woman. We're working on the show together. But in retrospect, when I look back at the show, you know, the honest truth is that we had 10 episodes. And of those 10 episodes, we had six female directors and one male director. And that already starts to inform the series in a very particular way. Now, the way that I noticed that it informed the series and it made me start to think about how original point of view informs the visual language. So we took really low angles. Our camera oftentimes was on a slider without any boxes, without a base, on the floor, looking up at our ceilings, looking up at our girls, you know, taking really low angles of beautiful young women. Which in a traditional horror sense, when you look back through the 80s, through the 70s, and even sometimes now, you know, when I am uh, working on a very like male based show, the instinct is to look down at a woman. The instinct is to have a higher camera that is looking down at a woman because traditionally, you know, somehow we've come to accept that as like the beauty angle or the better angle or they look so much better when we're looking down at them, which I don't even understand because that's not necessarily true for every person. Some people like I personally for myself, like I hate pictures of myself from a higher angle. I think, you know, what works in pictures of me is I have a strong jawline, just like a lot of our girls, you know, and looking up at somebody with a camera, you make them feel more powerful, like they have more agency in the story. They're not a passive observer. They are the hero. You know, these are hero angles as well. You know, and that was very much that came from Lisa Soper, who was the pilot director. She directed a number of episodes in the series, you know, and Lisa is, I think, just a little bit shorter than me. I'm pretty short. I'm 5'2". And kind of like the the approach wasn't, you know, how can we make these girls look even better than they look? Because they already look great. It was like, you, you know, there's no angle that you can frame of Bailey Madison or our Imogen or Chandler that will make them look unattractive. They're gorgeous young women. You know, we did in episode seven, Alex Pillai, who's an incredible director from England, came in and and he had some of these, like we had a longer conversation because he came to me at one point. He was like, you know, I've been watching the dailies and maybe we should like not embrace these lower angles on some of them because, you know, it it's not as attractive. And I was like, you know, Alex, let's have a real conversation about this that like, no matter what, they're attractive. Like you, you can put the camera wherever you want in the room and that the point of the story isn't necessarily to make these girls look more attractive. It's to give them agency and to give them power and allow them to be the heroes of their own story. And that experience in itself, you know, it, it does. It makes me think a lot about how, who we are in our physical bodies, you know, where we come from, you know, whether we come from a poor background or a rich background and how that informs what we consider to be beautiful, acceptable, attractive, or unattractive. And that feeds into the pop culture zeitgeist through these, you know, more diverse voices that we're seeing produce work. And this is where it becomes extremely important, you know, that we are moving towards a more diverse 
this time and that there is more representation of different points of views. You know, right now I'm on a very testosterone driven, very kind of action male show interestingly with a female lead but still you know um you know it's not as diverse of a crew and it's a crew that comes from an older world from like the Ridley Scott world you know and to them like you can see that those like there is only a specific way of doing things you know whereas like I've learned for myself as a filmmaker okay you don't want to center frame an anamorphic but that's not that's not a hard rule like we we can create different types of visual language within the grammar that's available for filmmaking. And depending on where we come from, we'll have different opinions and different ways of framing and different things that we say through that framing. You know, this episode four, uh, the one entitled The Female Gaze, at its center, it has uh, the psycho shower scene being filmed with the genders reversed. And I'm curious about how you as then the director of photography approached these scenes from the filming and kind of how that ties in with this larger theme? Well, uh, you know, specifically for that, and and I feel like, you know, um, when I was working with Lisa, it's such a strong visual collaboration, you know, and she was actually adamant that we repeat all the cuts from the original psycho of that shower scene. It's not in there in the final, in the final edit, but we basically shot the psycho shower scene pretty much shot for shot and stole it from Psycho, you know, and the reversal is that it's a guy instead of a girl who's the victim. And then like so much of these, the series, when you watch the whole show, the storyline is really about, I don't know quite how to word this. I'd say reclaiming your power, you know, moving away from victimhood, um, kind of uh, recovering from trauma through I guess, to a certain level, revenge, you know, and that revenge takes place, you know, in an alternative art space for Chandler, you know, which is that filming of the psycho scene. It's not that Tabby's character becomes the killer or becomes, you know, our antihero, but she reclaims her power through her art, you know, which I feel like, you know, this whole series kind of looking back on the experience, looking back on the experience of working with these incredible women directors. Um, it was like a collective reframing of the female gaze on horror and on horror that happens to us as women all too often. Now you were the DP for episodes three through 10. Tell me about some of your favorites. Every episode had what we called a set piece, which was like our classic horror action chase, you know, almost getting caught by the killer. Some of the episodes had more than one of those scenes, but we really took a lot of, we really put a lot of attention into those scenes. We prevised all of those scenes. We had our stunt team go and shoot it based on the conversations that the director, myself, and Tracy Ruggiero, who was our stunt coordinator, would have and again, you know, here we go. We, our stunt coordinator was also a woman. You know, in fact, like, again, the the entire core creative team was was very much women. But so, you know, so every episode had a set piece. For me, I'd say, like, some of the most interesting set pieces that we had. Um, I loved episode seven, which I did with Alex Pillai. We had the Hall of Mirrors chase scene, you know, from a photographic perspective. Obviously, you know, a Hall of Mirrors is always um, 
a little bit intimidating. How are you going to shoot a hall of mirrors without seeing the camera? Um, we prevised the whole thing. We prevised it on plans. We went in there when they first built it. Um, the trick is really to keep the mirrors on gimbals. And then the other thing that helps is that if there is some sort of architecture to the space where it's not just fully all mirrors, which our hall of mirrors have these beautiful kind of gothic arches it really helps to hide the camera. And it's not as, um, uh, you know, it's kind of every every time I do something that like feels to me technically intimidating, I find that it's actually not. I find that in the end, it's leaning into breaking down the elements into portions of simplicity, you know, is the best way to approach a, uh, a technically intense visual sequence. So we had the Hall of Mirrors in that episode. And then we also had a carnival, interestingly, we also had a carnival in episode seven of I Know What You Did Last Summer, which leads <laughs> me back to that idea of like we're playing on horror tropes and a carnival, very much classic horror trope. What was uh, different about the carnival in Pretty Little Liars was that uh, we ended up building this carnival inside an old armory um, in Schenectady, New York. And partially that was driven by the fact that we were shooting in January, February. It was really cold and you know, and cold carnival horror, like, sounds great visually, but when you break it down to the bare bones of how are we going to shoot it, how are our characters going to, and their performances going to be impacted by the weather, and it has a severe impact on the crew, on the performers, you know, you can't bundle them all in North Face jackets, you know, they still, like, have to be dressed like they're in a TV show. So they're in like, in a way, like the limitation became the gift. And the gift was that we moved the carnival into this armory. And that created this very um, almost abstract, like you don't really know where you are. It's a dark space. You and and tell me, you saw the series because you don't. You're like, I don't know if I'm in. If, am I inside? Am I outside? But it's this dark space filled with colored, you know, neon lighting, motivated by the carnival. That I I felt like, you know, it also like we could keep the smoke in there. We could keep that creepy, you know, crunchy 1970s atmosphere in there. And that was a huge build, and it was a huge sequence. It didn't occur to me when I was watching that you might be inside and having that much control over it it's actually because of the i think the visual palette of the entire show and it just plays right into it i assumed it was outside and and, and built it's great to have that much control over it in retrospect Yes. And I think, you know, in speaking to that element of control, you know, there's also an element in that carnival very strongly of relinquishing control and allowing the limitation to become the gift that dictates the visual language. And what I mean by that is that, you know, originally, if we were on a on a hundred million dollar movie, you know, my dream would be that I have control over all of the lights of the carnival, that we can put all of them on a dimmer, that we can, you know, and in a situation like this, slowly, you know, like, as we're building the sequence, as we're prepping for it, I find out, you know, what I don't have control over. And that was, you know, um, the lights of the carnival were what they were. I couldn't dim them. I couldn't control them. I couldn't reprogram them and I couldn't dim them down, you know, so that meant for me that I had very bright 
neon lights in what is a very dark horror show, you know, so how do I deal with that in that space? And the way that I deal with that is then I made my film lights much bigger, you know, so I like, I basically had to pump enough light in there to overpower those neon lights so that they weren't overly bright, if that makes sense. Which meant that like, you know, through the planning, like, what I originally thought I was going to do, I ended up with a very different approach, you know, and that was bringing in my own big lights that are, you know, LED, RGB, programmable light sources that then I can program to do what the carnival lights are doing. So a lot of those things, you know, I think in pre-production, Alex and I would have like, do we want this scene to be red? Do we want this scene to be green? And then it was like, you know what, this scene is going to be whatever that ride happens <laughs> to be, you know, and we're going to embrace that and go with that. And in my experience, like that's really part of the creative process that as you work for years, you learn to trust that creative process and you learn not to lose your mind when you're like, oh my God, I can't control that element. And then you're like, okay, well, maybe, maybe this is a gift, you know, like that alien abduction light, you know, and I think it went from like red to green or something like that. And that was it. That was great for the scene. You know, and it ended up being a great color palette for the scene. Had we, you know, been able to design it and control it, would it have been better or worse? I I don't know, you know, but part of that creative process is also bending to the limitations and allowing those limitations to dictate the end of the creative. So, Anka, what other episodes maybe stand out for you? You know, one of my favorite episodes is episode six, you know, and 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 for a number of reasons, I feel like the show really hit its stride in its visual language. By that point, you know, those conversations of too dark, too bright, you know, um, episode six really like I felt like it had the bright welcoming, you know, like really rich visuals. And then it allowed us to go into very dark moments. And that's something, you know, again, that I personally really enjoy. I love having a lot of contrast within the visual language of a story, you know, rather than being all dark all the time or just bright all the time. To me, what's fascinating is the journey between the two spaces, especially in dramatic horror, you know, because if you don't have that contrast, Trust, then you can't have that emotional reaction. And I just, I loved episode six. I felt like there was like texture and, uh, you know, and like I said, brightness. And we opened up our world to this gorgeous hotel and to this train yard. And we had some really exciting new sets. Um, the bowling alley was also like, it was awesome that it was cosmic bowling, not just a boring bowling alley. So we could, you know, again, have permission for really cool colors inside the bowling alley. Like, I feel like everything just the whole episode plays really, really well for me. And I do feel like our visual language really hit its stride and is kind of at like one of the highest highs of the series at that point. Well, this is a fun series to watch thinking about visual language. And I really appreciate you opening that up for us. On that note, we're going to call it a wrap. It was great having you here. It was great being here. Thank you so much. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info on our website, blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media, so check it out. Anka, where else are we going to see your work? 
I had a chance to be one of the DPs on a spectacular new show for FX called Kindred. Um, that's super exciting. So be on the lookout for that one. And then I just got back from the Venice Film Festival with Steve Buscemi's The Listener, which is a fantastic, deep, poignant movie for our time starring Tessa Thompson. You should see it come out sometime next year. I'm going to be watching for those projects and I hope you'll come back and talk about them. I hope so too. My closing credits, thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and to all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line.